Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. Uh, I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies. I guess we're still talking about Will Smith. Uh, the latest news, so much as the story continues to qualify uh, as news, is that Smith, who already resigned from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, has been banned from the Oscars for 10 years, but has not been banned from being nominated for Oscars, notedly. Um, which, as Matt Bellany noted in his newsletter, uh, means that he'll probably do some like small to mid-budget indie in three or four years, and that's going to earn a lot of buzz. People are going to be talking about him for the Oscars. It's going to start a whole Will Smith-redeemed narrative, so he won't... Won't be able to go to the show, but maybe he'll still be nominated. Who knows? Uh, really, at this point, though, what we're talking about is how we talk about Will Smith, right? Which means that now Peter and Alyssa and I are talking about how we talk about how other people talk about Will Smith. Yeah, it's like Will Smith's all the way down. It's it's the multiverse of Will Smith's. We'll get to the multiverse in a minute. Um, this is the inherently recursive nature of all primarily online controversies. Eventually, the thing that happened in this case, Will Smith assaulting Chris Rock on live television in front of tens of millions of people in the middle of an award show, uh, and moments before he accomplished a goal that he had strived for for decades, and which he had engaged in almost maniacal self-image control while doing so, uh, becomes less about the thing and how we talk about the thing. So in this particular instance, right, no one really cares as much about Will Smith anymore as they do about, say, making a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith, as one prominent Twitter account in the so-called horror community did and was promptly dragged all weekend for the offense. They don't really care about the Oscars so much as what it means for African-American character actor Henry Lennox to write a op-ed for a variety calling on Smith to return the award for the sanctity of the Oscars. They don't really care about Smith's behavior so much as they care about the lack of similar outrage aimed at Adrian Brody for kissing Halle Berry on stage or for the Academy giving Roman Polanski an Oscar after he fled the country following his rape of a child, right? It's all of these arguments get wrapped up into weird digressions about race and gender in some of the unhealthiest ways our society can manifest. And to paraphrase Freud, sometimes assault is just an assault. There's no need to deploy that 150,000 degree that you got in intersectionality studies, right? Um, but you got to talk about something. And you might as well make use of that degree while you do it, right? Uh, if we have to talk about it, and we do because this is controversies and controversies, hopefully this is the last time we'll be able to talk about it. But everybody is still talking about it, right, Peter? Wasn't it the talk of the town when you were uh, out of town this weekend? Yeah, so I was traveling and not paying nearly as much uh, attention to the news as I usually do. I just sort of vaguely kind of checking in Twitter every now and then when I had a couple of minutes. And it seemed to me like... This was something that people were still quite exercised about. In real life, I mean, you you were you were talking to people, you were having actual IRL conversations with people about this, right? There were people, yeah, who wanted to talk about it, right? I mean, I was traveling, I was a, at a, a work conference event, and there were there were people who, you know, wanted to talk a little bit about this. Um, but it also just sort of seemed to burn up a huge amount of kind of Twitter discourse energy, uh, as, as far as I could tell. I mean, it, the fact that it rose to the top of my attention, even while... I wasn't really paying attention um, was indicative here. And it's one of those things that like that's perfect for the discourse because it's obviously newsworthy and yet requires you to know almost nothing about anything in order to have an opinion about it. Right. You need to know you need to know 11 seconds of video from like the Japanese or Australian version of the Oscars. The uns, you, you, that's all you need to have seen. 
you don't even actually need to have seen that. In fact, you just need to have read like an eight word headline. Will Smith slaps somebody on stage at the Oscars. I don't know if that's actually eight words. Somebody should count for me. And the, the sort of the simplicity of the event is what makes people coming back to it. Also, I mean, it is it's genuinely a, a bizarre and unusual occurrence, right? This is not something that we've ever really like, it's hard to come up with an analog for this. Like, what's a comp for this one? Uh, I would say the the most recent comp I was thinking about this the other day. I think the most recent comparison that came to mind for me was Mike Tyson biting Evander Holyfield's ear in the middle of a prize fight. Like that was so genuinely bizarre that people just talked about it. Yeah, uh, for for months. And uh, didn't Mike Tyson get like prohibited from selling ear shaped pot gummies or something crazy like yes, that? Yes, that was recently. Um, right? It's you, just can't sell, were... you can't sell human. You can't sell human shaped <laughs> cannabis products in the state of Colorado. That's a thing I learned. Oh this year. man, uh, that's boy. Freedom is not on the march there. I I thought that was a the free state of Colorado. Uh, no, but this, this is, is what the libertarians were talking the, about. This is actually something. This is. Indicative of, I, I think, a sort of something that's sort of depressing about the state of our pop culture discourse is that what gets talked about is highly correlated with stuff that you don't need to actually where you don't need to know anything or have any domain of expertise where like it doesn't even really matter all that much if you've ever seen a Will Smith movie. Right, or or know anything about him or have watched the Red Table Talk series or like have, uh, you know, any sort of sense of the history here. All you need to know is that that eight or 10 word headline and, you know, a 10 second video that millions of people saw happen more or less in real time. And so it just and then it becomes like a it becomes like a metaphor or a sort of not even a metaphor it becomes a, a diving board that, off which you can like do tricks about your uh, about whatever issue it is that you care about already. Uh, and I, I think it's it's not super great. I think people have to end up like there's, in you know, to some extent, people have to talk about this sort of thing when it happens in real time. And it's totally justifiable. But the second and third order stuff just becomes becomes sort of tiresome. I don't know. Do Alyssa. you guys think that he should return his Oscar? To no. Alyssa, do we do we want to debate on the on the merits of returning the Oscar, or should we talk about what we're actually talking about here? Because I, I I do think that like the conversation about the conversation is the only interesting thing about this at this point, which is that we are still talking about it. Well, and part of what I find fascinating about this is Peter. Obviously, everything you say about the way internet discourse consumes this is true. But as I wrote my column for the Post today, part of what's fascinating about the event is that. It is in some ways so simple, right? I mean, this is, we live in an era when no, nobody agrees on what's bad. And if we agree on what's bad, nobody agrees what should be done about it. And this is a case where everyone agrees that what Will Smith did was bad. Even if you, you know, are someone who kind of has the feels about seeing a, you know, a black woman with a um, with an illness get defended on national television, like nobody thinks it's a good idea for Will Smith to have walked on stage and smacked Chris Rock. Like just... Nobody thinks that was like wise or considered or just nobody thinks it's good. And actually the Academy's response to it, once they got done sort of fumbling around in a way that I actually sort of sympathize with, because what the hell are you going to do when something that you never imagined happening happens in the middle of your live telecast? Um, you know, I mean, it's totally unprecedented. You can't like write a rule book for like, you know, turn to page 47 if Will Smith slaps the hell out of someone on the Oscar stage. Like that that playbook doesn't exist. They have that rule but, now, though. 
Like they now. Oh, yes, like they there, do. There are some meeting. Maybe they don't have it finalized, but there is now there have been some meetings about what to do. And like it this is, is like going a, in the producer's was manual. A, this is it's like um, the 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 liberal arts school uh, college that I uh, started at had a student handbook. And there was a line that was something to the effect of no bonfires in dorm rooms. And you you wonder how that you got know, there, but you know exactly how it got there. <laughs> right. But so despite the fact that they sort of, you know, were caught like, you know, trying to sort of cover their asses and like, there was a debate about whether Will Smith had been asked to leave. At the end of the day, they did like the sensible thing that was available to them. Right. I mean, the best way to prevent Will Smith from slapping someone at the Oscars in the near future is to ban Will Smith from the Oscars in the near future. The best way to like make it very clear to anyone who might be, you know, feeling themselves out of lockdown and, you know, a little under socialized and tempted to rush the stage or do any sort of outburst at the Oscars. To, the best way to prevent them from doing that is to ban Will Smith from the Oscars for 10 years. He resigned from the Academy, so they can't kick him out, which I, I'm sure they would have done. Like, and no one would have questioned him being expelled from the Academy had he, you know, had he needed to be kicked out instead of resigning. But they didn't ban him from being nominated, which is smart because that puts the Board of Governors in a position that they absolutely don't want to be in. Like, what are you going to do? Try and, like, claw back Kevin Spacey's Oscar? What are you going to do? It's just, like, ban any number of, like, you know, not great people from being nominated for things. Like, they, they don't want to go there. Um, and even though this is, you know, a very discreet event in that it's, you know, like, to a certain extent, it's an attack on the Academy. If they ban Will Smith from competing for Oscars and then, like, you know, Harvey Weinstein's ghost makes, um, like, resurrects Miramax and, like, ghost Harvey Weinstein is nominated for Best Picture, people are going to have a point. It's like, you know, ghost Harvey Weinstein, serial rapist. Like, why are you letting him compete and not Will Smith? They don't want to go there. And they're not going to make him give back the Oscar and they shouldn't make him give back the Oscar. And it doesn't make sense for him to give back the Oscar because it is an award where his victory was decided before he walked up on that stage. And because it's not an award for being a good person or a good member of the Academy, it's an award for acting. Yeah. The thing that is most frustrating to me is about how all of these discussions get into weird hypotheticals about, well, what about this behavior here when like – I'm sorry, but the the actual crime here was not really the slap. Again, I've, I've said this before. The crime here wasn't the slap so much as where the slap happened, yep. right? That is like, if I got into a slap fight with Peter Suderman at Chuck E. Cheese in Dallas, Texas, uh, and I was there I was thereafter banned from all Chuck E. Cheeses, but I wasn't arrested and imprisoned for for it. Nobody would be like, oh, it's unacceptable he got <laughs> he got banned from Chuck E. Cheese. Or it's he unacceptable be allowed- that he merely got banned from Chuck E. Right. Cheese. Right. I mean, like I like the the place where the thing happens has at least some meaning on the punishment. So like the 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 arguments about, you know, Kevin Spacey and Harvey Weinstein and all these, I, I find them totally disingenuous. It is it is a manifestation of anti-anti thinking. This is a thing we, we talk about a lot at The Bulwark, right? Anti-anti-Trump. It's not so much, nobody wants to be put in the position of defending Donald Trump. So instead what you do is you attack the people who are criticizing Donald Trump. And you say, oh, well, well how about this? You know, they're not being, they're not being consistent. They're not being... Uh, you know, rigorous with their punishments. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, you, you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to judge everybody the same way, but like, if a thing happens at the Oscars, it is totally reasonable to, uh, levy an Oscar specific punishment. I think that is totally fine. But I do think, I mean, I think part of the reason the discourse is breaking down is because we legitimately do face a very complicated set of questions about what our new social norms should be 
and um, what, you know, what sort of the sentencing, the moral sentencing commission should be for those offenses. And so it's almost hard for people to recognize a simple situation where they see one. And despite the fact that this is crazy and unprecedented, it's what Will Smith did was simple. The judgment of it is simple and the response was appropriately simple. And in a weird way, we should all take the win and be like, this is a good old fashioned moment of moral clarity. Let's not complicate things. I think if Sonny and I got into a slap fight at a Chuck E. Cheese, it would be the funniest thing I could imagine. Yes, uh, I can imagine a few things funnier, but there is a multiverse somewhere where this has happened. Don't worry. Again, we'll, we'll get to that. Possibly in a so what because do think? Is I it a, beat you in skee-ball. Uh, or the, the greatest or game one of, of or Because Papa one shot. of you insulted me, right? Obviously, oh, that's like... Were, that's, yeah, that's it. Not, there's no scenario in which either of you would insult me. You're both fabulous. This would, this multiverse is... I can think of I can think of a few. Uh, you know, we could we could get into some specifics. All right. Uh, so, what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that we're still talking about this, Alyssa? Uh, it's a controversy that you are apparently thinking of insults for me, and you know, in your head. That's uh, what I do. It's, it's true. I've, I've got like a little lockbox here. It's like if if I it's like Batman planning to take out Superman and the rest of the Justice League. If I ever need to take down Alyssa and Peter in short order, I can do that. With a series of simple tricks. That is controversial. Uh, no, yeah, it's controversial that people are having stupid takes on Will Smith. It's not controversial that the Academy did the obvious rational thing that they should have done. Peter. I think it's a non-troversy. I just actually don't think it, it matters that much. Like, people are going to talk about, about drama because people love to talk about drama, right? And this is, and this is, this is drama between, that involves rich, famous beautiful people who everybody knows that happened in public. Uh, and like, it's, this is, there's a reason that people watch real housewives and, you know, the reality television. I don't, I don't love that sort of drama myself, but people love this stuff and it's not actually controversial that they're still talking about it because again, it's so easy to talk about it because it's a thing that like that anyone can have an opinion about and can, and that anyone can attach their pre-existing agenda to. I think it's a mild controversy. I, I I was talking, I had lunch with somebody this week uh, here in Dallas, and we were talking about like the lack of good film writing and, you know, I, and and how much of the film writing culture has changed from the days of, you know, Pauline Kael and Anthony Saris and all that. Right. But the we, we do have a we have we have a different sort of film writing and film talking culture. And it's this sort of thing. And it it gets real annoying. It gets real annoying. And I don't like it. And I wish people could just talk about, you know, camera moves and the such, you know, talk. I want to hear people talk about what it means that Michael Bay has adopted drone technology in his movie. Speaking of which, on this Friday's bonus episode at atma.thebulwark.com, uh, we're going to talk about Michael Bay and his new movie, Ambulance, and why it stumbled at the box office and what that suggests about not only the state of Bay's career, but also big to medium budget. That movie only cost $40 million. I was surprised by that. Uh, action spectacle and what is happening to that in general. Speaking of spectacles, on to the main event. Everything, everywhere, all at once. All right, so if you follow me on Twitter, which you should, because I'm great, uh, you'll know that I've been raving about this movie for the better part of a month. Uh, here is the barest bones plot description of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, Michelle Yeoh plays Evelyn Wang, who is an aging immigrant who runs a laundromat with her husband, Waymond, uh, who is played by Ki Hua Kwan. Um, he plans on divorcing her. She doesn't know about this. Evelyn's old-fashioned father, meanwhile, Gong Gong, who's played by the great James Hong, 
is visiting them, uh, and Evelyn is trying to hide from him the fact that her daughter, Joy, who is played by Stephanie Hsu in this movie, is a lesbian. In the midst of all this family drama, there's tax trouble. An auditor, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is out to get the family for taking so many expense deductions unrelated to the business uh, at hand, but is in fact related to Evelyn's thwarted dream. She's basically expensing things like singing lessons and the sort. Uh, and in the midst of the tax and family drama, there's a, well, a um, interdimensional crisis. Turns out that Evelyn lives in the multiverse, and there's a being of unimaginable power named Jobu Tabaki, who's hopping through every part of the multiverse in an effort to destroy it all because of her malevolent nihilism. All right, so this all sounds pretty weird, right? Imagine the multiverse like the training program in the Matrix where you can absorb the experiences of yourself from another part of the multiverse in order to gain their skills and knowledge, right? So if you want to learn Kung Fu, you hop to the part of the multiverse where uh, you in some other life became a martial arts movie star, right? If you want to learn how to use knives and knife fight, you hop to the part of the multiverse where you're a Benihana chef. You get the idea. One shorthand for this movie uh, is that it's kind of like Rick and Morty, sans the detached cynicism. And this is an aggressively uncynical sort of film. Uh, indeed, I can envision and have in fact heard from some folks who find it gratingly earnest with many teachable moments about the power of family and love and all that. Um, but that earnestness is really undercut by the film's inherent silliness. This is less after-school special than Saturday morning cartoon in the Tex Avery sort of sense, right? It's Looney Tunes, not Rick and Morty. Hey, look, I'm a pretty cynical guy. I like Rick and Morty. Fun show. Um, but everything about this picture moved me on a fairly deep and fundamental and profound level. Even if you're immune to its charms on that level, however, there's a very entertaining surface-level action comedy type movie that combines well-choreographed kung fu action with outrageous visuals like a raccoon riding a man's head, ratatouille style, or a version of Evelyn who, thanks to an evolutionary report, has hot dogs. It's right. raccoonatui. Ra no, it's ra raccoonies. <laughs> oh, is what right. It's called it's... In the film. Uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> there's there's uh, there's a lot to love here. Is what I'm saying. In short, I loved it, and I know Peter loves the film. We've talked about it, but I haven't actually talked to Alyssa about it yet. And I'm hoping she's not going to break my heart here. What did you think about everything, everywhere, all at once, Alyssa? I really enjoyed it, um, and especially as like as the mother of a daughter, had the big feels about this movie, um, which ends up being having as its sort of crucial emotional lever the strained relationship between Evelyn and Joy. Um, but as I've been thinking about the movie in recent days, I feel like there are some emotional lacunas in it that, you know, it's hard for me to say where they would have slotted in more, you know, sort of information or character development here. But I felt like there is there is an emotional weakness in the movie and that we just don't learn very much about Joy in it. We learn a lot about sort of Evelyn's choices and her thwarted desires. But other than the fact that her mom wants her to stay closeted about her around her grandfather and that she's moved away from home uh, in the sense that she's no longer living with her parents, although she appears to live in the same city, we just don't know that much about Joy. And, you know, there is an interesting metaphor for depression in this movie, right? I mean, I assume spoilers are allowed at this point, although it's like it's it, this movie is it's not hard to spoilable in yeah. the sense that like speaking about it does not even come close to channeling what it's actually like. Um, so in the movie, um, 
Joy's like alter ego, Joe Tabaki, this like her, I guess her alternate multiverse personality has created this sort of all destroying vortex by putting everything on a bagel, which is a great joke. Uh, I, an I, everything I, bagel. Yes. It's an every, you know, it's like not just salt and sesame seeds. It's like all of all possible human existence and experience. And the movie never really addresses sort of why she would be attracted to this void, right? I mean, she has become this sort of chaotic figure where she can access everything. But the parallel between sort of her and Joy doesn't quite land in part because we don't really know much about Joy at all as a person. Uh, She does not sort of pop the way that Evelyn does. And there's also sort of an interesting undercooked metaphor here about the difference between an immigrant who sort of wants everything and doesn't quite accomplish any of it and a second generation kid who potentially has all of these options and is overwhelmed by choice, right? And again, that's a place where developing joy a little bit more as a person, I think would have made this movie not land stronger for me in the moment, but sit stronger with me in the days that followed. Because I've thought about it a lot, right? I mean, I think this is an extremely amusingly accomplished movie that's I think very, very close to being great, but not quite there for me. Um, and that's the thing that has just kept coming back to me and bothering me. Yeah, I mean, my my only real response to that is that Joy is more of a stand-in, I think, for the general idea of teenage or young adult nihilism. Yeah. I mean, she is a specific character with specific desires and, you know, whatever. But I, I, I think that she works better as a sort of broader metaphor for, like, people who look at the world and think, I can't change anything, uh, so nothing really matters. And I think it is so succinctly done that it is a very appealing representation of that idea. At the same time, there's so much specificity in this movie, right? I mean— you have like Wayman's fondness for googly eyes, which ends up becoming, you know, sort of providing a sort of climactic moment in the movie. You, you know, you get these lovely flashbacks of her, him encouraging Evelyn to, you know, sort of run, leave home and run away with him. You see his enthusiasm when, you know, you see the little details that suggest that he finds sort of enthusiasm and real strength in joy and kindness. Um, you know, you, even with Deirdre, the like evil tax auditor played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who I think is delightful in this, you know, you end up finding out that she went through a contentious divorce of her own. You like she apparently like maybe vapes and like maybe gets a little high, you know, I mean, there are just a lot of these details that are sketched in. And so, you know, there's this climactic scene where Evelyn's trying to get Joy not to leave and Joy saying that she thinks it would be better off if they were estranged. And Joy is talking about these just, you know, sort of painful clashes between the two of them. But you've only ever seen, you know, Evelyn say some kind of generically, you know, just awkward or mean parent-child things. And again, you know, I I get that she's supposed to be a stand-in, but she could still be a stand-in who's sketched a little bit more specifically, right? I mean, you know, we talked about Turning Red on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and I've seen people joke that this is like, that everything everywhere all at once is basically like Turning Red meets The Matrix. And I think that's kind of true. And, you know, Turning Red is a movie that is highly, highly specific. And, you know, Turning Red and uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once 
didn't need to be, you know, set in someplace as, you know, culturally specific as this extremely specific community. It didn't, you know, it doesn't, joy doesn't even have to be, you know, sketch in as in as insane details, the main character in Turning Red, but she could have been just a little bit more of a person um, in a way that I think just leeches away a little bit something. It's like an unfinished corner of the canvas, at least it was to me. One more uh, thought, and then we'll head over to Peter. Joy is not actually the interesting character in that dynamic. It's actually Jobu Topaki, who we get much more about. Yeah. And much more into. And again, this is the idea, I think, of this character dyad is that she is a representation of all. She's she's a stand-in for the teenage disposition, basically, yeah, which uh, I think we've all been So, at. I mean, to me, I think the best way to sort of answer your frustration here or your not your lack of total satisfaction is that this is an inverted Pixar film and Pixar is explicitly referenced in the raccoon ratatouille joke right and th- this movie very clearly draws from the Pixar formula and Pixar's interest in taking like conventional middle class domestic stories and then rendering them through the lens of genre and you know you talked about it as uh, as turning red meets the matrix i almost feel like it's sort of it plays like a secret sequel to Turning Red, right? Obviously yeah. not playing that way. Obviously, they, they, they weren't thinking about that. They hadn't seen turn, Turning Red. But it's like you can imagine Turning Red 2 just being yeah. this movie, except the difference here is I said it was inverted. And the difference is that Pixar's films are typically, not always, but typically told essentially from the child's perspective. That's true in, in Turning Red. That's true in Inside Out, which I think is another uh, touchstone that's important here. And the parents... Are, are not like just cliches who you don't know anything about, but they are quick sketches that are representational of sort of an idea of parents in those the movies. The Incredibles being an obvious exception to that right. rule. And sometimes Pixar does take the parents' side too, right? And they're, they're always pitching to the parents. But when they take the side of their kids, uh, the parents are, are... It's not that they're not specific characters, but they are... They exist at the periphery. And here, the characters who are, you know, this is this is a story about the parents and in particular about the mother. And it is about the mother's choice, how she is going to sort of how she's going to interact with her child and and her husband, um, but in particular with her child to prevent her child from becoming the, you know, uh, from becoming a Jobu Tupaki and embracing this deep awful nihilism right and so it is about like this is about the mother's choice and not about the child's character i want to push back on that a little bit because a lot of the pixar movies are set sort of at the dawn of adolescence where characters are building identities that are separate from their parents and often to a certain extent without relation to them right i mean in inside out riley is upset because her parents have moved but you know, part of her recovering herself is finding her own internal equilibrium without her parents necessarily being the key actors there. But here, the relationship between Evelyn and Joy is pretty paramount, right? I mean, it's not just, I mean, it's not just that she has to solve it in order to like save the multiverse, but it is key to Evelyn figuring out what's going on with her and her husband and like finding a way back to valuing her husband. And it's key to her undoing sort of her own parental damage, right? And that, you know, part of the root of her pain ends up being that her dad just kind of let her go and didn't fight for her. And she recognizes that she needs to fight for her daughter. But in the sort of metaphor versus supernatural aspect of this, 
there is kind of contrast between the two of them that's a very important metaphor for the mother-daughter relationship, right? Like Evelyn sees all of these options and is kind of excited by them. And Joy sees all these, Joy slash Joe Buchibaki sees all these options and like has sort of her brain kind of short-circuited by them. Um, well, it's not that her brain is short-circuited. It's that her moral universe, like her her moral center collapsed. I think it's more than that, though, right? It's, I mean, and that's why I almost wonder if this, if the, like, the everything bagel and Joe Buchibaki, I mean, to me, that very felt very much like a metaphor for depression and suicide, right? More than just pure sort of moral nihilism. Like, she wants to go through the portal and, like, kind of be dissolved, Right. And again, I just, you know, I, I feel like I'm harping on this maybe out of proportion, but in part because I enjoyed the movie so much. Like, I find this aspect of it just frustrating. I'm stuck on it because, in part because I want it to be slightly better so I can embrace this with the full enthusiasm that you and Sonny have. I mean, I, I take your point to some extent. I, I think you could even have done that with a, a couple of extra scenes, but this is already a movie that is, I think it's well-paced, but it's somewhat longer. I mean, it's not, you know, two hours and 45. It's a two hour and 20 minute movie. And two hours and 12. I, I thought it was two twenty, but um, in any case, it's, a, it's over two hours already. Um, and it's the kind of thing that I think it's it's just genuinely a difficult movie to pace and structure and to sort of find those beats. I actually thought I was impressed uh, by the way this movie by the this movie isn't slow. It's not like I wouldn't call it. You know, it's it definitely just sort of uh, it 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 moves along at a pretty good clip. And yet that first act doesn't jolt you right into the to the concept, right? Like you, this this sets up the family first. And you get a little inkling uh, that something is amiss. Not, I mean, you kind of know because what the movie's about. But like, you get a little inkling that something's amiss. Maybe eight minutes in or so, when you see the security camera video uh, of um, of the husband doing some crazy running through the dry cleaning shop, and then things move a little bit further once they get to the IRS office. But even still, this movie doesn't fully reveal like the depths of its concept until well into the second half. And I really appreciated that this movie didn't feel like it needed to come up with a five minute or, you know, a 10 minute opening action sequence that that like explains the concept and gives us a full tease of like where this movie is going. And that mo- that makes the movie better in a lot of ways. Um, and so to me, like there's actually a bunch of of really good character work that just like forces you to the, I, it's not that the movie forces you to go through it because it's actually all really well done and delightful. And the, the photography is, is energetic and like the camera moves around, you know, in some interesting ways just around the dry cleaning space. And it's a reminder that directors who care a lot about visuals as the Daniels clearly do can find interesting ways to shoot the most mundane spaces. Um, but it is a movie that puts the character stuff first and doesn't feel a need to, fully and succinctly explain the concept in like a thesis statement kind of way in the first five or 10 minutes of the movie, it unspools and develops. And so as it is adding layer upon layer of goofiness and weirdness and conceptual conceit and visual shtick, right? It it builds its power out of that. I think it would have been, I I just feel like it it would have been sort of, it would have, it could have slowed the movie down to add yet more, you know, additional character work because that stuff is is pretty 
pretty precisely calibrated in there. I mean, you talked, uh, you mentioned the the budget for Ambulance, Sonny, $40 million. This movie has a $25 million budget. And to me, one of the biggest things coming out of this movie, which I just absolutely adored and loved, I'm sure. I can't imagine that it won't be my favorite film of the year, and it might be my favorite film of the decade, right? This is this is a movie that I'm just over the moon ecstatic for. To me, the, one of the big lessons from this movie is, here's what creative filmmakers can do with a relatively modest budget. And $25 million is, on the one hand, a lot of money. But this movie is just looks so much better than so many movies that cost four or six times as much. And there's so many, so many more ideas that work together seamlessly and effectively. And we, you know, we talked about Morbius recently as a movie that like that had zero ideas. I almost felt like everything everywhere all at once made up for it. No, it didn't. But this was like, I mean, this is just like here is a movie where people came in and said, let's take this concept and then let's build it. And let's not just sort of like take it one layer in. Let's not take it two layers in. Like this movie goes 50 layers deep and somehow or another makes it all work. It's it's a total triumph to me of, of like, not just of kind of visual interest or even emotional depth, but of conceptual and conceit development, right? There's There's nothing unexplored here in terms of the conceit. This movie feels like it, it somehow in the space of two hours and 20 minutes or two hours and 12 minutes, whatever it is, this movie takes you through the entire idea and pulls it all apart and puts it all back together. And there are 10-hour TV series out right now that are like, well, the first season kind of got halfway through the big idea. And now I guess there's a couple more seasons where I'm gonna, it's going to be 40 hours and they still haven't fully developed their main concept. This movie does it all in, under, you know, in a feature running time. To push back slightly on Alyssa's point, again, just I, I think that focusing too much on joy, as Peter says, would kind of unbalance it. But that's it's neither here nor there. I can I think that I think it's a totally reasonable critique if if we're if we're to take this movie seriously as a movie about relationships between parents, then you know, maybe that some of that is a little underbaked. The last thing I wanted to highlight here uh is just how well the movie integrates all of the different visual components because I, I like it is a movie that that is moving through genres with real fluidity and not just genres but also styles of filmmaking so like there are very specific Wong Kar Wai references yeah. right with the step printing and in the rain and the alley right and there are uh, there are Matrix re- references with the Kung Fu and and the, you know, some of the fight Jackie work Jackie Chan. Um, I mean, there's a, like, that, that fight right, with, the, um, with the fanny pack. So yeah, great. Right, but it's a classic exactly. Jackie Chan scene. And all of that is just done so, just like moving between aspect ratios, moving between styles of film, moving between brief moments of like sublime absurdity, as as in the moment when they're both rocks. Which is... They, they go to the part of the multiverse where they're rocks talking which, to each which other. Which is a great blend of like Monty Python and Stanley Kubrick. Yep. And... And the, yeah, the movie cinematic reference points, like the number of them, the way that they are incorporated, just great. You don't have to understand them, right? Which is which is another important thing that the movie doesn't. It's not just like, hey, here's an Easter egg for you movie nerds. It, they totally work on their own terms. And then if you understand what they're doing, I think they work even better. And it does remind me a little bit of um, debates about Quentin Tarantino throughout the first couple of his mo- movies, and in particular uh, with Kill Bill, where there were some real complaints that 
Quentin Tarantino was just a collage artist and was only sort of making his movies uh, out of uh, references to other movies and there wasn't anything actually there. And I, I thought that was crazy at the time because he was making something totally new out of all of those things. And I think Everything Everywhere All at Once shows how you can take all those references and build something totally original and and totally unique, even though there a, a huge amount of this movie is blending up stuff that you have seen before and idea and you know and uh, and influences that like the Daniels clearly love a a wide variety of movies from the last fifty years and wanted to pack all of those movies and all of those ideas into a single feature film. Well, and it also serves their point, right? Which is that, you know, different styles and moods of film can take you to entirely different places and let you imagine and see things in entirely different ways. Um, And I also, I mean, one of the things that I loved about this, I love Michelle Yeoh. I mean, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was one of the sort of seminal movie going experiences of my teen years. And seeing her get to just do a whole bunch of different things in this movie is incredibly fun. And that's really true for everyone in the cast, right? I mean, this is an, this is to a certain extent an exercise, a filmmaking exercise that not only allows the Daniels to explore different styles and references and genres, but it essentially says to the actors, like, go play in a bunch of different modes, right? It's, you know, it's a concept that, you know, is sort of inherently playful from what it's asking of the actors. Because it's like, you get to go do a bunch of different things. Um, and it's, you know, this is, this movie is silly. It's occasionally Purell. It's just so much fun, right? And it's, I mean, I've talked a lot about the emotional stuff up front, but it's like, this was a fantastic movie to see in a packed theater. Like, because it is, it's a hoot. And that sounds like I'm downgrading it, but it's not at all, right? Like, it's just, it's really pleasurable. And you know, I think a lot of serious movies are not particularly attuned to just the pleasure of the audience right now. But this is none of this is cheap, right? I mean, there are jokes that are like a little puerile or immature, but like <laughs> there's a whole you know, action I, scene built around scene. jumping onto a plug-looking thing <laughs> into a That's slot like, in your body. Yeah, that become well, but then becomes. I'd forgotten an ex- about. It's like a, I'd forgotten about that when I when I recommended this movie. Dick joke, right? Like, yeah. and it's I mean, like an eight-minute elaborately designed sequence and, that in which multiple characters have that as their specific action goal for a point. Yes, it's yes that then <laughs> ends Chekhov's into plug. that that then develops into uh, uh, uh yeah a dick joke Man, uh, many dicks. Uh, I, uh, I I had forgotten about that sequence when I recommended How? it. I was like, I was like, oh, I was like, yeah, you could probably take like a fourteen or fifteen year old to see this. So, I would have oh, loved shoot. this. I forgot about that. No, I, I will. Uh, before we wrap up, I just want to say I also loved the, the way this movie used Michelle Yeoh, right? Because it relies on on the legend of Michelle Yeoh and plays to her plays to her cinematic legend so well because you like. You believe that she could be a glamorous movie star because because she is and has been one for 20 something years. And you believe also that she could be like a kick ass action hero because she's played one on TV. But also she's a great, like intimate, dramatic actress when she wants to be and can just hold the screen in a in a little tiny domestic scene Uh, and giving her. 
giving her the space to be all of those things at once on screen. She just absolutely kills in this movie. And it is to the Daniels credit that they made a movie like an action movie built around. I don't know how old she is, but she's she's not like a, you know, a, a young actress. She's been doing stuff for 25 or 30 years. And to build an action movie around a, a great middle aged female actress is an unusual thing. And the Daniels figured out a way to do it that just works incredibly well. Yeah, she'll be 60 this year, which is sort of incomprehensible. But yeah. A lot of credit. Um, if you see this movie at an Alamo Draft House, there is a fantastic pre-show, including a long interview with her and an analysis of her career. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on everything, everywhere, all at once. Peter? I give it uh, every every thumb in the multiverse is up as high as it can be. Uh, well, that doesn't make sense. In some of the universes, they'd be nope, down. There isn't. There's no in the universe in, in the multiverse. Everything no, seriously, happens. this is this truly is the the best experience I've had at the movies Maybe in years. I mean, I, I just was over the moon for this. Uh, Alyssa. Thumbs way up. Even the ones that are shaped like hot dogs. I uh, <laughs> I also give this a thumbs up. And like Peter, I, uh, when I when I walked out of the theater after seeing a, a preview that I paid for, it wasn't even a press screening. I just I went to it because it was playing. I was like almost a little woozy. I have not felt that way walking out of a theater since seeing The Matrix, the original Matrix which I like went back and saw like four times in theaters. So uh, I'll, I'll be seeing this one again a couple times in theaters, hopefully. Um, but it's very good. All right, that is it for this week's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode coming Friday to atma.thebulwark.com on Ambulance in the state of Michael Bay. Uh, make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunday Bunch. I'll come into the biz. In fact, best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 